Let me pray for us this morning, and then we'll be in Genesis chapter 4. Let's pray together. God, I pray in these still moments. We know this to be true, that your Holy Spirit is with us. We need you, Holy Spirit, to do what only you can do. That's to use this eternal word that's given to us by God to transform us. We need you desperately, Holy Spirit, to do that in our midst today. As we come to this passage of Scripture, I pray that would be true for all of us. Yes, this passage of Scripture is very dark and very gloomy, but there is hope in this passage. I pray that we would see the hope today. In seeing the hope, God, we respond to the hope of the Gospel that is in this message. So lead us, guide us. We offer our lives, as Paul says, as a living and holy sacrifice. To be renewed by the renewing of our minds. To know what is your good and perfect and pleasing will. May we know that and live that today. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Again, we will be in your pew Bibles on page 3 in Genesis chapter 4. If you have not been with us, uh, the last two weeks we had revival. Uh, I'd encourage you to go back on, in online and listen to Brother BJ walk us through the book of Jude. It was an amazing uh, time together. My prayer is always that God would use revival to revive us. And then last week, Brother Frank, you, you did an amazing job of um, filling in the pulpit, walking us through the book or the letter of Philemon. So thank you for that. But here we are in Genesis chapter 4. We're back in the middle of what we are calling the series Origins. We're simply looking at the first 11 chapters of uh, the book of Genesis. It means beginning. And all that we hold to be true about uh, our doctrinal beliefs and who God is and who we are come out of these first 11 chapters. And we've been journeying our way through. We're now here in chapter 4. In chapter 3, we see the fall that Adam and Eve fell. They were tempted by the serpent. They ate the fruit that God told them not to eat, and they eat it. And then God comes in uh, Genesis chapter 14 through the following and gives their punishment or their condemnation for their sin. But if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, He offers us the hope. That there would be one day an offering, an offspring from the woman that would come and would crush the head of the serpent. That there is Jesus who is going to come and He's going to establish who He is and He's going to defeat Satan. We see that right out of the gates in Genesis chapter 3. That's the hope of the Gospel. And you see that for the rest of the Bible. But here in Genesis chapter 4, there's a dark change of events. I don't imagine this is what Adam and Eve thought about when, when God said to them, hey, there's going to be things that are going to happen that aren't going to turn out so well. And it was dark already when the fall happened, but from this moment on in Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Revelation chapter 20, it's dark. The rest of the Bible is filled with depravity. 
And it doesn't start off slowly. It's not like, oh, we'll go steal something from the cookie jar. Like, as you know, the story starts off after the fall of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve have children. And they, there's the first murder that happens. I mean, I can imagine a worse way for sin to, to take off. Murder. And well, I want to look this morning for us and ask this question. Because we can come to this text and we can point the, can, the finger at Cain. But the question you and I have to answer and ask ourselves this morning is how are we like Cain? In Jude, chapter, in Jude verse 11, it says, the way of Cain, all of us in this room have the way of Cain in us. We are way more like Cain than we are like Abel. And so we must ask the question, and I'll help us answer this morning, how are we like Cain? So I want to look at several things this morning. I want to look at the godly background that Cain comes from. I want to look at Cain's religious set of worship. Then I, I want to look at Cain's slavery to sin. Cain's punishment, and then I want to look lastly at how God restores it all. There is hope in this passage. At the first murder, we can still see the hope of the gospel. And that is true for us today. But we must first say this, how are we like Cain? Because we'll never get to the hope of the gospel unless we're able to realize and recognize how we're like Cain. There's no reason for the hope of the gospel if we don't see ourselves as Cain this morning. So let's look at Cain's godly background. We see this in verse 1 and 2. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. I could stop there and, and preach on those six words. Alone, I, I could preach hours on those six words. The way our culture has taken sex to, to know someone and has made it something that the Bible never meant it to be. Sex was an intimate moment between a husband and a wife. Let me say that again. Between a husband and a wife. A male and a female. And, and, and God knew that. And Adam and Eve knew that. This isn't something that they took haphazardly. They knew that God had promised them in chapter 3 and in chapter 2 that they would have an offspring. That they would have a family. And so they took this as an intimate moment, not just a sexual moment. They knew each other is what the word says they were fulfilling what God had called them to do. They were living out godly relationship with one another. And then she, Eve, conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. You see, this is what we do know about Adam and Eve. They were sinful people. There's no doubt about that. But they were godly people. Just because we're sinful people does not mean we cannot be godly people. God brings redemption. And in the redemption, they lived their life to pursue God. We see that just in the very first moments. Even they come together and they fulfill the promise and they're faithful to God's call on their life to be fruitful and multiply. That's a sign of godliness. That's a sign of obedience. But then I want you to see what Eve said after the baby is born. Do you catch this in the text? It says this. I have gotten a man with what? The help of who? Not Adam, but God. She knew in that moment that life 
only comes from God. Like everyone that has children, it's not just because you had sex, it's because God in His sovereignty and in His goodness allowed you, because He's the author of life, to bring life into the world. And she knew that. And so she's saying out loud at the moment of birth, this is because of God, not because of me. That shows the godliness of Eve. I wonder, as that mom was holding that baby boy, do you catch what she says? She does not say out loud, oh, this baby that you've given to me. She says this, man, now I've had a baby boy, and I didn't look at him and think, man, that's a man. That's a grown man that just came out. That was a baby. But Eve says, look at this man that you have given to me. You know what she was thinking? Genesis chapter 3, where God had promised her that there would be a man or an offspring that would come and crush the head of the serpent. So she's holding the baby, what she believed to be the promise. She's not thinking about Jesus. She's thinking Cain has arrived. God has given me the gift that's going to conquer the sin that we just did a few moments ago. And she understands that. So I want you to think about her and her heart. I don't know how many years later it is. When this man doesn't fulfill the promise, she's thinking about her whole life, his whole life. I just want you to hold on to that. So there's all this hope because of Adam and Eve, there's hope in Cain. And then they have Abel, the second child. It's amazing to me, if you ever have a chance, just look up names and what they mean. You know what the word, the name Cain means? It means to have gotten something. It means to have received a gift. You know what the name Abel means? Short or vanity. She didn't even know what was about to happen to her baby boy, and she names him about his destiny. You think that's by mistake? No, that's called God. God is setting the tone for what's going to happen. So Cain and Abel, Cain's the older brother. He's born. Abel is born next. And it says this, Cain works the ground and Abel the sheep. Many people say this, there was conflict from the get-go. I don't know this to be true. I've never worked on a farm. I uh, live kind of on a farm, but I didn't know this to be true. That farmers and shepherds, they don't always get along well. Why? Because shepherds want the land to keep their sheep and the farmers want the land to grow stuff on. So there's always been conflict with Cain and Abel. So we see that Cain comes from a very godly background. You ever wondered how two boys can come from the same home and end up totally different places? Like Adam and Eve were godly parents that raised Cain and Abel the same exact way. And yet we're going to see how they didn't end up the same at all. And we'll know this by the text. It's not how you're raised necessarily that counts. It's what happens in your heart that matters. And so now it comes to Cain's religious worship. Catch that word, religious. He comes to worship God. It says in verse 3 that 
that it, it came upon the time, in the course of time, came brought his offering to the Lord. That is a sign of worship. Bringing an offering was a sign of worship. So here Cain is coming to worship God. But as we're going to find out, it's not the offering that matters. God does not care about how much you put in the plate this morning. Do you know that? You, you could have given a penny, or you could have given 10 million pennies. God cares less about that check that was placed in that offering table today. What He cares about, and what we're going to see, He cares about where does it come from in the heart. The act of obedience is not an act of the will, but an act of the heart. And that's what we see happen with Cain. So he comes to the table. You may have been coming here all the time and offering a sacrifice. But let's look at the sacrifice that Cain offered. It says this, in the course of time, Cain brought the Lord what? What kind of an offering? In offering. It doesn't say the offering. It just says an offering. And yet we see in contrast the offering that Abel brought. Let's look at Abel's offering. We do the contrast between the two to see what's going on in the heart of Cain. And Abel also brought an offering. But what kind of offering did he bring? It says this, two things that we see that he brought. The firstborn of the flock and the fat portions. That means he brought the best of the best of the best. Now again, God doesn't care about the best of the best of the best. What God cares about and what we're going to see is how Abel and what Abel brought. And then it says this, so they bring, both bring, come to the table, they both make a sacrifice before the Lord, but it says this in verse 5, but what's the result of this, the offering that is brought? It says this, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The result of Cain's offering was it did not please God. Now we have to ask the question, how come it didn't please God? Now this text doesn't tell us the reason it doesn't please God. We've got to use the whole counsel of God to know the reason. The reason is found in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 4, it says this in Hebrews 11, verse 4. By what? Faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Through which he was commended as what? Righteousness. And God commended him by accepting his gift and through his faith. It was the faith of Abel that allowed Abel's sacrifice to be acceptable. Cain brought no faith, no, no offering in faith. He simply brought an act of the will. And that displeased God. If all you're doing is you're coming here out of the act of the will, your presence does not please God by being in this church. It's not your presence that God cares about. It's your heart. Are you coming with an end and an act of faith today? And all the days, and when you give, and when you serve, and, and when you worship God, is it out of a, a heart of faith? Next, we see 
what was truly going on in the heart of Cain. Take notice in verse 5 and hold on to take this notice. Who was Cain angry at? The Lord. Who got punished for Cain's anger? Abel. I wonder how often we're so angry at God and we make other people pay for it. Like he, it, does nev- it never says in the text that Cain was angry with Abel. It simply says that his anger was towards who? God, who did not accept God's consequences. Like he wasn't happy with how God was doing things, in other words. How many of us in the room have been angry with God because God's ways are not our ways? And what God is doing, we don't like. And because of that, everyone around us pays for it. And yet, we never bring our anger towards God. Cain never takes his anger to the one he's angry at. He lashes out to the one that he's compared to in his mind. And what God is doing with Cain is trying to show Cain his heart. What's going on in him, not what's going on in Abel. He's not saying, hey, look what your brother did. That's not what God is doing. I don't know if you have siblings, but that's the one thing that drove me crazy about my parents. Well, I'm sure there's a thousand other things. I hated being compared to my siblings. That's not what God is doing. God is not comparing Cain to Abel. What God is doing is comparing Cain to God. And he lashes out at Abel. Now we see that Cain's slavery to sin in verses 6 to 8. Let me read that for you. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? Basically, Cain cannot hide his displeasure with God. He cannot hide his emotions. And then he asked him another question. If you do well, will you not be accepted? He's saying, look, something's happened in you, Cain. And so God is coming to Cain to help Cain see his heart. He is basically asking the same exact thing he asked Adam and Eve in the garden. Hey, what happened? What's going on? Remember in verse 9 of chapter 3, he said, where are you? Who's told you this? He's doing the same thing to Cain, but Cain's response is, is totally different than Adam and Eve's response. God is speaking to Cain to give a warning about his heart. And Cain misses it. And then he says this, as a way of protection and provision for Cain. Because God sees his heart. God sees where his heart is inclined to go. God knows that we have sinful hearts that are inclined to let sin take reign in our life. And so he's bringing a warning, an intervention to Cain about his sin. And he says this in verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do well, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. He's saying, hey, get ahead of it before sin pounces on you. 
Cain, I see what's going on in your heart and what's about to happen in your heart. It's going to change the course of history forever. Like sin is crouching right at your door, Cain. Do something about it. Wake up and do something about the sin that's at your door, that's in your heart. And this is what he says to do with sin that's crouching at the door. He says sin at the door, its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. We must rule over sin. Sin is crouching at all of our doors. What Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5 is this. We have an adversary that prowls around like a what? Roaring lion. What do roaring lions do before they devour? They crouch. And my great fear for us, we don't think we have a roaring lion at our doorstep that we have some kind of house cat purring around at the welcome table. Like we think, oh, that's just a cute little kitty. Let's go pet the kitty. Let's go let the cat in. Let's feed the cat. First of all, you should never bring cats in your house anyway. I probably shouldn't say that. I'm on my own again, Frank. Okay. But, but we invite sin into the house. And we think we can tame sin. And yet God in His Word here in Genesis 4 and in 1 Peter 5 it says, no, no, sin is crouching at your door waiting to devour you and devour me. And we must what? Master it. Have control of it. My greatest fear for my own life, my greatest fear for you, my greatest fear for this church is we do not have master over our sin, but we let sin come in the door and we let it have its heyday, its freedom in this house. God says, no, no, take the sin and get it out of the house. We must eradicate sin from our lives. Because if we do not eradicate sin from our lives, it says this, Paul says this, when sin is full born, when it's fully grown, it gives way to what? Death. I wonder how much sin is in our house and this church. And we've let it in. I'm going to get to the end of the passage and all of us must take an inventory. Have we let sin in your life? And have you let sin in your house? And have you let sin in this church? That's where we're going. But we see the response of Cain. Cain doesn't yield to the warning that God gives to him. But God is warning Cain. God knows. God is sovereign. God sees all things. God sees into what's about to happen. God knows about what's about to happen. And He's giving the warning side. Don't do this. Don't do this. And yet it just bounces right off a hardened heart of Cain. He's wanting Cain to be moved to repentance. But we see that Cain is never moved to repentance by the warning of God. He is enslaved to sin. So enslaved, it says this, and then Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, this is premeditated. 
like Cain has been plotting and plotting and plotting. How do I get revenge against God? I'm going to go after the one that, that, that robbed me of it, Abel. And so he's plotting. How do I get at Abel? He invites him into a field. Just think about that. The, the rage this man had to have, and yet somehow he covered it. Like Abel's like, okay, man, let's go hang out. Let's go play stickball. I don't know what they did back in the day. But Abel's like watching his older brother with the invitation and goes out joyfully to this field. It doesn't say that Cain drug Abel with him. It just says they both went to the field. And then what happens? The heart of Cain is ultimately revealed. And it says this when they were in the field. The premeditation of the murder, the murder happens. And Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, I don't want to be too graphic, but that had to be one violent, violent murder scene. Like he didn't have a gun. They didn't have guns back then. Like He either took a rock and bashed his head. He either took the knife that Abel had just sacrificed the, the sheep with and slit his throat, or he strangled or he beat him to death. There had to be blood everywhere. The text says that to us. Like this was a violent, violent, violent scene. And let's see what happens after, right after Cain kills Abel, his younger brother. Verse 9. Cain's punishment. Cain rose up against Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, like within moments, where's God? Right there, the same way he was with his mom and dad back in the garden. God is at all places at all times. He sees all things. There is no sin that is hidden from the eyes of God. And He will call you out in a heartbeat. And it's not because He's calling you out. It's He's wanting to chastise you to a place of repentance. And He says several things to Cain. He probes him first. He asks him a question to move him to repentance. What is this that you have done? He says, then the Lord said in verse 9 to Cain, where is Abel your brother? God knew exactly where Abel was. God wanted Cain to come to a place of repentance. God is not stupid to need some advice about where Abel was from Cain. He simply wanted Cain to be drawn to him to repentance. And so my question to you, my question to me is, where are you this morning? Where is Abel, your brother? You see, then he says this. Cain shows his heart finally to God. He showed his actions to Abel. Now he shows his heart to God. He said this, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Two things we see in this about the heart of Cain. The first one is this. He is a flat out liar. 
Cain knew exactly where his brother was. Cain still had the blood of Abel on his hands and all over his body. He lied to God. He did not repent, but lied and hid from God. The second thing is this. He shirked his responsibilities. Of course, the answer is yes, you are your brother's keeper. All of us in this room, yes, we are our brothers and our sisters' keepers. Galatians 6 tells us that. If you're in this family, the family of God, I am your keeper and you are my keeper. That is what it means to be in a family. No no matter how much you dislike someone, we are to watch over each other and to protect each other. I, I was not close to my older brother at all. If we were bitter enemies in the house, But God forbid someone do something to his little brother on the playground. He watched over me. And God is saying to us in this passage through Cain, yes, you are your brother's keeper. We are to watch one another's backs. Are we doing that? Are we saying, I'm not my brother's keeper. He can do whatever he wants. No. We are our brothers and our sisters' keepers. The second thing we see is this. Not only God probe, but now God begins to speak directly to Cain. And the Lord said, what have you done? What have you done? And then he goes into, I know exactly what you've done. I know that you've killed your brother. He says this in the text. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to who? Me. From the ground. Me being the one that gives life. Now his blood that's been taken from him cries back at the one who has given him life. It's crying out to me. I know what you've done. God in his goodness and his kindness will ask us what we've done. But he'll always reveal to us what our sin is. You don't have to be surprised what your sin is. God will reveal it to you. Your sin cries out before a holy God. God sees it and God will call you to it. And then God gives the punishment for this wicked, heinous crime. His punishment is twofold. It says this, And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood and from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer Yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Two things. The very ground that Cain had been working will no longer produce fruit or food for him. He was a farmer and now the things that he will farm will no longer give him nourishment. That's the first one. The second one is this. That you will wander the earth. You will never have a home again. You will never have a home again. You'll never have roots. You'll never have friends. You'll never see your parents again. You will wander the planet the rest of your life. And God is doing that so that that Cain will be drawn to repentance. That the very thing he will work will yield to him. And that the very thing he doesn't want is family. That God will restore that back to him. But look at his heart. Look what Cain says to God. He, does, he never apologizes. He never confesses what he did. He simply goes into self-pity. In, in the next verse, 
He says to God, not what, not what David did. Remember when David got called out from Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Against you and you alone have I sinned, God, is what, he, what David says. Like David is drawn to repentance when his sin is revealed to him. But here came when his sin is revealed and his punishment is given to him. He says back to God, that's too much for me. That punishment is too much. Not I'm sorry. Not I can't believe I've done this. Not against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. I just can't handle the punishment. If you have kids, you know they don't like punishment. They don't, they don't ever confess. They simply don't want to be punished. That's what Cain is doing. And yet, God hears him. God hears him when he cries out in protest of what God is going to do to him. God doesn't just step back and let that punishment overwhelm Cain, but we see God's gracious kindness and love even to a wicked sinner who just committed murder. God says, okay. And then the Lord says, not so, Cain. Though you will wander and though you will be a fugitive and though people will kill you, no one will kill you because of my gracious kindness to you. He deserves death. Cain deserves to die for this murder. And yet God in his gracious kindness back to him says, okay, I hear you. I hear that you think this punishment is too severe for you. So I'll show you my kindness. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. It will be worse for them than it is for you, Cain. Is what God says. And then the Lord in His grace marks Cain, it says. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. If anyone who found you should attack you. So God protects Cain from other people with a mark. There's a mark that's coming for you and me that will protect us from someone else. God's going to continue to show His gracious kindness by marking us. We are like Cain. And I think lastly, the worst punishment of all the punishments is found in verse 16. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, never to return. That's called hell. Cain, was, from that moment on, was never back in the presence of the Lord because of his sin. That we are like Cain. Our sin deserves for us to be separated from God for all of eternity. That is what sin will always do. Will separate us from God. That is hell. Two quick things and then I'll wrap us up. We see that now Cain leaves the presence of the Lord. He gets married. Many people don't know. It's most likely to one of his sisters. They conceive. They have a child. They, the child... Uh, grows and then they begin to form this city or this compound that they're going to live and then just wickedness after wickedness after wickedness after wickedness. Basically seven generations later we see that his 
great, 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 great grandson commits the same exact murder and then boasts about it in verse 23 and 24. I've killed one man for striking me. And then he says, if, if Cain's punishment is this and Cain's protection is this, then 77-fold. Look what I've done. I've done even worse. And so he's boasting. That, that's a sign of a boast. That's not a, a place of lamentation. He's boasting about what he's done. Sin always gives birth to more and more and more and more wickedness. This was a very godless society that was taking place. But thank God, chapter 4 of Genesis does not stop at verse 24. Now we see God's great provision. And then it says, Adam knew his wife again and bore a son called Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Remember, back at the murder, Eve's precious heart must have been devastated. She lost two kids in one moment. She would never see Cain ever again. And she would never look into the eyes of Abel ever again. What a wounded, wounded mom that must have been. And the hope of the promise that God gave her in Genesis chapter 3 must have been dashed. And yet, what does it say? They knew each other again. And she said, who God has appointed me another all. God is doing for me yet again what I could not do for myself. And He's going to fulfill His promise that He gave me back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And then Seth, also, a son was born. He called him Enosh. And look at this. Because of Seth, because of Adam, and because of Eve, and because of them holding on to the promise of God. Look where this verse ends. Look where this chapter ends. Look how this story ends. It says this. At that time, when this people over here were doing wicked things, this group of people that believed in the goodness of God and that God had appointed an offspring that would clear out everything and make things right. It says that set of offspring, at that time, that set of people began to what? Call on the name of the Lord. Revival. Because they believed in the promises of God. Revival happened. Now circle the word Seth in your Bible. And turn with me to Luke chapter 3. God is setting up the great promise. In Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through the following, I will not name all the names, but this is the genealogy of Christ Jesus our Lord. The one that was promised to us back in Genesis chapter 3. It says this, And the son of, the son of who? Seth. The son of who? Adam and Eve. Names matter in the Bible. The great promise of Jesus Christ comes to us through who? Seth. 
the great promise. See, that one name in Genesis chapter 4 points us all the way to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God was going to fulfill His promise, that there would be an offspring of Adam and Eve. There would be an offspring of Seth. And on and on and on we go all the way to Jesus that was going to crush the head of the serpent. You see, in this way, Jesus is so much like Abel. Whose blood was poured out all over the ground? Abel's. You see, I believe that Abel was who that offspring was talking about in Genesis 3. Because you see in the rest of Genesis, it was the second brother that always had the promise put on him. And in Cain's great revenge towards God, he kills the promise. Is that not what happened in Matthew chapter 24, 5, and 6? That the people of God, the older brother, if you will, then goes and slaughters the little brother, Jesus, Yet what happens that's so different, Christ's blood is not poured out onto the ground. Christ's blood has been poured out onto you and I so that we would now have the mark of Christ because we are Cain, not Abel. Christ's blood is on you. That's the mark that sets us apart from everyone else. My question to you this morning is this. Do you have the mark of Christ Jesus, His blood, out on you. If you do not, you are going to be like Cain. You will be apart from the presence of God for all of eternity. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans tells us that. We are Cain. All of us in this room have committed heinous crimes. We all have committed murder. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 21, You have heard it said this. You shall not murder, and anyone who murders shall be liable to judgment. But I, Christ Jesus, say this to everyone who is angry with his brother. You will be liable to that same judgment. All of us have committed murder. We have all been like Cain. And thank God, He sent His Son Jesus to pour out His blood that we slaughtered to cover our sin. My question to you, my question to me, has got to be this. How am I like Cain? Because if I do not see myself like Cain, I do not see that there needs to be a great sacrifice for me. And have you received the greatest sacrifice that Jack talked about in his prayer? Christ Jesus, our King. And our Savior. Let us pray. God we are like Cain. We have all fallen short of your great glory. Your great goodness. And your great kindness God in our sin. We have been like Cain. Your great rebuke oftentimes deflects off of our hearts. But I pray in this moment God. You would give us soft hearts. To receive your great rebuke. We confess to You, Lord Jesus, that yes, I have sinned. I have murdered. 
My punishment is to be cast away from you for all of eternity. But you've held to your promise that you made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That you would send a Savior to redeem the world. Not just the world, but me individually. I'm grateful that in your goodness and your kindness, you've shown me that. I pray for that. For anyone here this morning that does not know you as their Lord and their Savior, they would see that they're fallen human beings in desperate need of your great grace and your great mercy. God, the same way that Genesis 4 ends, let that be true for us this morning. And at that time, the people of Powell's Chapel began to call on the name of the Lord. Let us call out to you this morning. Amen.